Welcome to this week's episode of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell, family physician, professor at the University of Georgia, and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus, an evidence-based online primary care reference. Please check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. Here at Primary Care Update, we summarize recent research that we think is relevant to primary care physicians and clinicians. The opinions expressed are those of the commentators, and this podcast does not represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product, although we will criticize products quite regularly. As always, and uh, this week I'm joined by uh, Dr. John Hickner, family physician and editor of the Journal of Family Practice, and Dr. Henry Berry, professor of family medicine at Michigan State. Gents, how you doing? Doing well. Yeah? What's going on in your life? Uh, Not a great deal. I am... um, preparing for my retirement, trying to draft bittersweet letters of farewell to patients and having some tearful goodbyes after 30 years. So it's, um, it's been a challenge. But it's also a nice reminder of the difference that you've made in in those patients' lives, which is, which is why this is so bittersweet. Yes. So today's first poem uh, is one of mine. These, it's a systematic review, and the summary, the title says, Poor quality data suggests stem cell joint injections are safe, but of unclear benefit. It was in the American Journal of Sports Medicine at the end of 2018, volume 46, page 3550, if you want to read it yourself. Uh, so they were asking the question, do mesenchymal stem cell injections, so sometimes from adipose tissue, you know, other Uh, tissue, improve outcomes in patients with painful joint problems. And I was interested in this because a friend of mine went to the Emory Ortho Clinic in in Atlanta, and they recommended stem cell injections for his osteoarthritis of the knee. And he asked him, you know, how good are your results? He said, well, I don't know. And they said, so have you been following your patients? You know, you've done hundreds of these. They they bragged about how many hundreds they've done. So how are these hundreds of patients doing? We don't know. Uh, but, you know, they were highly confident in its effectiveness. I'm sure they were very confident in its profitability. But in any case, let's look at what the, the evidence actually is. So these authors looked for all the studies they could find. Mostly, they found 28 tiny studies, mostly retrospective and prospective cohort studies, uh, essentially looking through the charts um, or, or keeping track of what happened. So some places are keeping track. There were a grand total of about 580 participants there were only three RCTs. They had 15, 28, and 25 patients each, so teeny tiny studies. Um, plus, what they were comparing in these randomized trials wasn't stem cell injection to placebo injection or sham injection. They were comparing it to stem cells plus platelet-rich plasma. So why, why not? Let's give two questionable you know, therapies instead of just one. And the other two compared it to hyaluronic acid injections, and that we know that that has actually been largely debunked in the better quality studies. So saying that it works as well as hyaluronic acid is kind of damning it with faint praise, I would say. So anyway, um, harms were minimal. That's the bright side. But since there were only about 600 participants, if there were rare problems uh, down the line, that could easily be missed. Overall, they said patients reported feeling better after the stem cell injections, um, but, you know, this is really the poster child for placebo effect. You've got an impressive sounding, high techy kind of intervention. You've got large needles involved. Um, you have subjective outcomes. You have them done at fancy places like Emory University that bring all the prestige uh, that that institution has. Um, you know, if you look back at hyaluronic acid, it also looked very good in poorly controlled studies where patients knew what they were getting. 
uh, it, it looked pretty useless when you limited the data to those studies that actually did a good job of masking participants and physicians and outcome assessors to the intervention. And so I, I kind of concerned that the, this may be the same case here. So I think the bottom line, there's very little solid evidence about what I would call this orthopedic growth industry. Henry, I know you wrote the poem originally, so you you thought about this one a lot. What do you, what's what are yeah, your thoughts? Yeah, I think you hit it? a lot of the really important elements here that they used active. Actually, I uh, Henry, I hit all of you. <laughs> well, maybe not so fast. <laughs> so yes, you, so the 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 active comparator is a problem. Although one could argue that in fact uh, the active comparators might have been the net equivalent of a placebo. This was really a limited systematic review. They only looked at a couple of databases. They certainly didn't do an exhaustive search. There was no attempt to try to find unpublished studies. And we've talked about the issues around publication bias. Most of the studies were of low quality, as you pointed out. And uh, to paraphrase you in terms of damning with faint praise, you know, hey, at least we're safe. We don't kill people, which is frankly a a, a page right out of Nietzsche playbook that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger there you go i have a friend who had one of these injections last year and several months later i asked him well how did it go are you feeling better uh well maybe i think so yeah and that's a typical you know when they've done poorly controlled studies you know the, the things that respond best to the placebo effect are subjective outcomes and impressive interventions, and, and you have both going on here. So we really need properly controlled, adequately powered trials of this before we waste even more money. I don't know if insurance is paying for this or if people have to pay out of pocket, but either out way, of pocket. we really need good evidence. It's out of pocket. Yeah, yeah. out of pocket. And, you know, yeah, so we, we need good evidence for our patients. And it's really, uh, really sad that we uh, we aren't getting it and we aren't getting these uh, proper randomized trials. So anyway, um, so I think uh, curb your enthusiasm for stem cell injections till we have better evidence. Henry, you yeah, got a quiz so for us? we're recording two days after St. Patrick's Day. And in the U.S., we celebrate with parades and turning the Chicago River green. And many college students spend the day at their local pub consuming lots of adult beverages. Uh, Mark, um, how is it celebrated there in Dublin? There is some drinking involved. That's That was my observation. I was here. I flew back in on St. Patrick's Day, although it's not green beer. They would find that kind of ridiculous, but uh, lots of Guinness, lots of Guinness. All right. So in previous episodes, we have talked about hangovers and identification of patients with alcohol use disorders and internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy. So let's talk about medical therapy for alcohol use disorders. So the quiz asks, medications for treating patients with alcohol use disorders, A, are frequently prescribed, B, are generally effective, C, are most effective when guided by tests to identify genetic polymorphisms, D, are generally not FDA approved. Stay tuned. We will. John, it's your turn. We're going to be turning to testosterone therapy for symptoms of depression in men. Yes, one of my favorite drugs, testosterone. Uh, this study comes to us from Swedish investigators, was published in JAMA Psychiatry in 2019, volume 76, starting on page 31. 
The title of the study is Association of Testosterone Treatment with Alleviation of Depressive Symptoms in Men, a Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis. Now, this question has been uh, circulating really for some time. And so these investigators were able to find 27 studies that had depression measured before and after testosterone treatment. And for the most part, these were randomized trials, but they were not randomized trials of testosterone for depression. Uh, The depression was a secondary outcome that was measured in most. They included a total of 1,890 patients, so that averages only 70 patients per trial. So for the most part, these were small trials. They were also judged to be at high or unclear risk of bias. Uh, And they found that testosterone treatment was associated with what they call a significant improvement in depressive symptoms with an odds ratio of 2.30. Odds ratios are always difficult to interpret. And so I went to the meta-analysis to see if they could give us more specific information. And luckily the investigators did. They say this corresponds to an improvement of 2.2 points on the Beck Depression Inventory 2 which, by the way, is a 63-point scale. That's a 3.4% improvement. Is this clinically significant? You know, I have to say that I really doubt it, even though the investigators say that it is uh, clinically significant. That seems awfully small to me. They also found that this effect was isolated to those taking fairly high doses of testosterone, at least 500 milligrams per week. That's a heftier dose than I think most men uh, get. They also did a funnel plot analysis, which is a a very interesting analysis that I won't go into right now, but it helps detect whether or not there's publication bias of underreporting of negative trials. And indeed, they did find suggestion that there was underreporting of negative trials. So the bottom line is that they found a small improvement in depressive symptoms These were not studies designed to test testosterone for depression. I have to say that uh, based on this meta-analysis, I certainly would not use testosterone as treatment for depression. The authors, however, contend that in treatment-resistant depression, uh, this might be something that you could try. Of course, the trials were too small to look at adverse effects, and we know that in higher risk and older men, there are adverse cardiovascular risks. So I would have to say that for the most part, I would consider this uh, a negative meta-analysis, even though it's spun as having a small positive effect. So I agree with you. I mean, I think uh, the publication bias really concerns me, especially in the psychiatric literature. There's a long history of suppression of research and things like this, where you have um, kind of an potentially novel benefits, sort of a newsworthy thing, testosterone always makes the news, then they're going to be more likely to be publishing positive than negative trials. And, you know, that I love that it says, well, it may be effective, yet yeah, it may not be effective. I think it's, uh, I, I definitely am leaning toward the, the may not, particularly given the potential harms of these high doses of testosterone, right? Yes. If you want to give a placebo for depression, I would suggest, uh, suggest vitamin D, which has been studied directly, and vitamin D is at least safe. Uh, I spent a week in Palm Springs uh, in the sunny weather and got a healthy dose of vitamin D, and you know I'm feeling much better. 
<laughs> I'm sure you're not getting any vitamin D in northern Michigan this time of year, unless you put it in <laughs> no. a pill. Yes. Yeah. So this is okay. Where, so uh, you know, Henry, methodologic any, issues aside, there's just something rotten in the state of Denmark in regards to this paper, right? So first of all, if age, baseline testosterone levels, and severity of depression do not predict outcomes, that flies in the face of pretty much everything we know about the treatment of depression. Medications to treat mild to moderate depression are ineffective. They really are only effective in patients with moderate to severe. So there's that staged effect of this. Uh, and, and as you pointed out, the harms are really um, completely unaddressed in this paper. So what are the other alternatives for patients with treatment-resistant depression? Well, electricity, perhaps, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, and let's stay tuned on the new um, fangled device called ketamine. Yeah, that just got approved. That's right. We'll have to see how that, again, like to see longer-term studies and, and, and longer-term outcomes um, of that. So um, I'm going to rant a little bit. Uh, this is, uh, Henry gets to do rants sometimes, you know, John does, so I'm going to do a rant. So one of the criticism. So I, I was on the USPSTF for four years. And one of and I'm I'm a skeptic at heart, but at the same time, one of the criticisms that's made of some cancer screening programs, like for example, breast cancer screening, is that, well, even if you put together all the studies or you look at the largest studies or the most recent studies, there's a reduction in breast cancer mortality, but not all cause mortality. And after all, all cause mortality is the harder uh, you know, less, um, you know, less subject to bias kind of outcome. It's really the ultimate outcome. I don't care what I die of. Uh, I just want it to be fast uh, at, a, at a very old age. And I want to die very poor. Those are my criteria, but I don't care what it is that does me in. So examples of screening programs that have been proved not proven to reduce all cause mortality include things we do a lot of like colorectal cancer screening, breast cancer, and prostate cancer. Uh, in each case, there is at least some evidence, uh, particularly for colorectal and breast, of reduced disease-specific mortality, but not all cause. So when I think about this, um, and I, I've been thinking about this for a while, we actually wrote a paper on it for the British Journal of General Practice. I got together with one of my very smart biostats colleagues, uh, Dr. Kevin Dobbin, used to be at NIH and now is at Georgia. Um, and we've looked at it and thinking about it conceptually. So if you have 30% <clears throat> a risk reduction for breast cancer screening. That means, which is about what it is, that means you'll take a lifetime mortality risk from 3% to about 2.1%. But all-cause mortality over a, let's say, 10-year period for a group of women in their 60s might be 20%. Now, detecting a fairly large relative reduction from 3 to 2% is pretty easy or easier statistically than a small relative reduction from 20 to 19%. So essentially what we what Kevin figured out, and, and I wrote more of the clinical side of it, he did all the maths, and uh, essentially you need about eight to 10 times more patients in a study to detect all-cause mortality reduction compared to disease-specific. So some of these most recent trial of breast cancer screening in women in their 40s had about 100,000 women um, you know, 80, 50,000 in each group. So you'd need 800,000 to look for all-cause mortality. That just isn't going to happen. So our answer was to say, okay, we're not going to have those super huge trials. Uh, so why don't we look at the direction of mortality reduction? And we looked at the three largest recent 
uh, cancer screening trials, ovarian, breast, and lung cancer. And what we found for breast cancer and lung cancer was reassuring. The disease-specific mortality went down, so did the all-cause mortality. It wasn't statistically significant because of the problems I've talked about, but uh, in the lung cancer, it actually was statistically significant, and again, going in the same direction. Ovarian cancer in the UKC tox trial, 50 fewer deaths per 100,000 persons, 98 more all-cause deaths. So I'm sorry, 50 fewer ovarian cancer deaths, but 100 more all-cause mortality deaths. So that's very worrying. There was only about a 7% chance that that could happen by chance alone. And so we have to be worried about the unintended consequences of the additional surgeries and follow-ups and radiation and things like that. Uh, for ovarian cancer screening. So I guess my bottom line is that I think it's great if we can see all-cause mortality reduction, but I don't expect to based on the sample size that we'd need. You guys have any different opinions on this, I hope? Uh, Thanks, Mark. I think that was very helpful because I've also been concerned about this issue for some time. uh, And at least it helps give some credence to these screening programs that show some disease-specific mortality reductions. So it makes me feel a little bit better about the screening programs. So, of course, you and I might have a much longer conversation. Uber skeptic. I'm going to say uber skeptic. (laughs) We might have a much longer conversation sometime at our favorite watering hole. But um, I think the things that I would be most concerned about you alluded to, which is if there's an increase in all-cause mortality. So I don't want to give people an easy out for not trying to measure it. You provide some very compelling data with regards to some of the statistical issues and uh, sample size and the like. I am also more concerned, though, about the problem that you just hinted at at the very beginning, which is the the misclassification bias, right? We know that cause-specific mortality is fraught with peril. We have multiple studies in many different countries pointing out the the, the dilemmas of um, of cause-specific mortality. And I just think of the example of, you know, the 95-year-old man who dies of old age. We're not allowed to put old age on the death certificate. The only diagnosis that the person has was his prostate cancer that was diagnosed 50 years ago and has never caused any trouble. Guess what goes on the death certificate. So, you know, we do have some issues that we need to guard against and perhaps some of the solutions involve allowing for greater flexibility with regarding to put other causes of death onto death certificates. But, you know, fundamentally, the main thing I want to make sure is that when we have screening programs, we're not doing more harm than good. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it was interesting, you know, you're, I fully, uh, you know, em, embrace that point that we need to report all-cause mortality along with disease-specific mortality, even if we know the study is empowered for it, so that when we do a large meta-analysis, for example, we can maybe start to get at some of that or an individual patient data meta-analysis. It, w- it was interesting with the ovarian cancer study, they actually had to do kind of a post-hoc uh, you know, analysis where they use this weird statistical test. I mean, I, I, I asked biostatisticians if they'd heard of this and they'd never heard of it, but they found this one test that would show a statistically significant reduction in disease-specific mortality. They didn't report all-cause mortality except in like Appendix K, Table 26, kind of buried in there. So you really had to dig deep to find it. We were able to find it, but, um, you know, it needs to be reported transparently for all of these studies. So great point. 
Hey, Henry, I think we're going to finish up with your final poem, which is a, a really interesting and very important study about omega-3 fatty acids. Yeah, so this is a poem that Mark wrote. It, the title is Omega-3 Fatty Acids Don't Prevent Cancer or Cardiovascular Disease. This was the vital trial published earlier this year in the New England Journal of Medicine. So this was a double-blind, randomized control trial that in the context of a recent um, RCT of omega-3 fatty acids in patients with diabetes found no evidence of its benefit for primary prevention for cardiovascular disease. So the vital study, the one that we're talking about today, is probably the first big trial for primary prevention in a more general population. They recruited over 25,000 men and women. The men had to be 50 and older and women 55 and older. At baseline, they could not have any cardiovascular disease or cancer. The groups were pretty similar at the very beginning, roughly half men, half women. The mean age was 67, so an older group, and only about 14% had diabetes. They started off with a three-month run-in period. And if you recall, I tend to grouse about run-in periods because the ones that use an active run-in period where there's an active treatment tends to stack the deck in favor of the intervention. In this case, they used a run-in period with a placebo largely to uh, address adherence to the protocol. So this might actually not reflect what we can do in real world practice, but this does not necessarily stack the deck in favor of fish oil, so to speak. They got a gram of fish oil daily or a placebo. They followed people over five years. And what did they find? Nichts, nada, rien, bupkis. No change whatsoever in the likelihood of cancer diagnosis or a primary uh, outcome of uh, major adverse cardiac events, cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, stroke. There was a teeny tiny reduction in total MIs that uh, would result in a number needed to treat of well over 200. And since they did many, many analyses, it's quite possible that this was just a chance finding alone. So in essence, doesn't have much oomph to the use of fish oil supplements. Keep in mind that we have many of our patients. In fact, I had a woman come in and tell me recently that her boyfriend was complaining that she smells pretty bad. And I asked her, well, what are you taking in terms of medications and supplements? And she's been taking fish oil. And I suggested, you know, maybe you might want to stop that. And she and her boyfriend have a much better relationship now. The part that really mystifies me is that I don't understand why my cardiology colleagues still push the stuff. Well, Henry, uh, to defend the enthusiasts, not that I agree with them, uh, they might say, well, these people started it too late in life. They should have started it earlier in life. The dose is too small. How about one gram three times a day? So there's, there's always this uh, shred of doubt that the enthusiasts can put even into these well-done trials. You know, my, my point, my takeaway, and I gave a lecture um, on Friday about some of these controversies in prevention, and this was one of them, and, you know, looked at all the data. I, I agree, Henry, um, you know, if you look at the Cochrane Review, which found many, many similar trials and put it all together, there really is just nothing going on here. And um, the one thing that this study found, in addition to this little reduction in MIs, which is probably spurious, was that there was a 
uh, the primary outcome was statistically significantly improved in people who ate less than one and a half servings of fish per week, but not in those who ate more. So my takeaway, eat more fish. Okay. I think that's really a tastier way to do it. It won't, it makes your breath bad, but only for a short period. And, um, it seems to, you know, be just as effective as these supplements. So, okay. That's uh, fish oil. So, um, we'll try to find some positive trials <laughs> next time. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're finding lots of negative ones this week. Something right. does work out there. We're sure we're, we're going to find something that works. Anyway, um, I think it's time to toss it back to Henry for the answer. All right. the quiz. We're talking about something that works. Here we go. So medications for treating patients with alcohol use disorders, A, are frequently prescribed, B, are generally effective, C, are most effective when guided by tests to identify genetic polymorphisms, D, are generally not FDA approved. Well, last August in JAMA, um, Kranzler and colleagues published a paper that reviewed the state of affairs for treating patients with alcohol use disorders. They talked about screening and diagnosis, which we have covered um, previously. Um, but they also reviewed some other data related to treatment. Unfortunately, fewer than 10% of patients with alcohol use disorders receive medical therapy. The FDA has approved the use of three agents, disulfiram, acamprosate, and naltrexone for treating patients with alcohol use disorders. When you look at systematic reviews of these agents, the NNTs to prevent relapse over the course of six months to a year are generally in the 10 to 15 range. How expensive are they? Well, a month on, of, uh, on GoodRx.com, disulfiram is $40, acamprosate $62, naltrexone $25. Now, in addition to the FDA-approved medications, the VA and the American Psychiatric Association also recommend off-label drugs such as topiramate and gabapentin. At GoodRx.com, these cost roughly $10 to $15 for a month. Genetic testing is not recommended. And finally, uh, we also need to make sure that we include some of the other treatments that we've talked about in the past, whether it's Alcoholics Anonymous, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Group Therapy, those kinds of things. So we can actually make a big impact on a significant health risk as well as an economic uh, uh, drain on the healthcare system. Thanks for ending on a positive note, Henry. Yes, some positive things we can do. Guys, thanks so much. Um, I hope everyone listening out there enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends um, review us on iTunes. Let me rephrase that. Give us really good reviews on iTunes and uh, we'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.